Okay, so thank you so much for being here. It is really exciting to see, wow, we have um, lots of participants tonight. That is so cool. There's about um, 17 participants and a few more because I see some of y'all are, are doubled up. So that is um, really exciting. Thank you so much for being here. It just, it, it really means a lot because uh, this is a topic about which I'm, I'm very passionate. Um, and so to see, you know, people coming out to, to hear about it is so exciting for me. And I'd like to open us up in a word of prayer. Um, this is a, uh, actually a prayer book called Animal Rights by Andrew Lindsay. He is a um, animal theologian. And let's appreciate the pun there at the title, rights, you know, being spelled like a religious right, but play on animal. It's, it's great. 10 out of 10 title. Um, and it's a wonderful, wonderful resource. It's full of prayers and liturgical resources that are inclusive of non-human animals or specifically geared towards any sort of ministry that involves um, animals. And it's also just in and of itself, the prayers are beautiful. So if it's something that you're interested in, highly recommend that book. Um, but I'm going to open us up with a prayer from, from that. Uh, so if you please uh, pray with me. Holy Father, your son, Jesus Christ, is the reconciler of all things in heaven and on earth. Send us your spirit that we may be made one with all your creatures and know that all things come from you and belong to you now and forever. Amen. So this class is going to be an introduction to animal theology. Now, you'll notice that uh, in the title, I did not say animal ethics or moral questions pertaining to how we treat non-human animals. Those questions are absolutely important, and I'm sure that they're going to come up sometime uh, within, our, within the few weeks of our study. But I believe that before we engage with ethical questions about non-human animals, we must ask where animals belong in God's creation. We need more training, I think, at least from the perspective of the church interacting with this question. We need more training about how to take animals seriously as a locus for theological reflection. And so to address these questions about animals, I'm going to be primarily using the work of a theologian by the name of David Clough. And excuse me as I, I'll show you the title of the book here. There we go. So this work David, uh, by David Clough, and uh, he is a Methodist theologian from the UK. And are y'all seeing a, uh, can I get a shake your heads? Are you seeing a PowerPoint presentation? And Okay, good. Just making sure. So yes, um, Clough is uh, a Methodist theologian from the UK, and he is perhaps the best living animal theologian in the world right now. 
uh, and his book on animals, which is in two volumes, is currently kind of the gold standard, if you will, of systematic animal theology. And so a lot of my, the information that's presented here is going to be borrowed from him. I'm also going to be influenced uh, by the theologian that we just heard from, Andrew Lindsay, who uh, has written several books about the topic as well. Uh, and so those are primarily my, uh, the sources that I'm working with. And you are, just to clarify, you are not required to buy this book um, or any of these books. And this class is not going to be a book study per se. Um, but I did want to just mention this, that if you are interested in what my primary sources are, um, or if you wish to engage with this topic in more depth, I highly recommend uh, the book that you're seeing there. And so this week, we will be thinking about the question, what is the purpose of creation? And so let's go ahead and just jump into that question. Let's really start to think about it because it might not be the most obvious question that we think of. What is the purpose of creation? To summarize a point made by David Clough, is the rest of the world merely scenery for humanity? Is it kind of like the staging on which the all important actions of humans unfold? Is it just kind of a backdrop that can be dispensed with or changed and it doesn't really matter? Or does creation itself play an integral role in God's purposes? And so that's the question that I want us to consider tonight. And I'll go ahead and give away the spoiler at the beginning here. And I'll tell you what I think that the purpose of creation is. That sounds like a lofty statement as if I'm going to answer all your deepest metaphysical questions. But <laughs> what the, from a theological perspective and a biblical perspective, uh, I'll, I'll give away a spoiler here, and then we will see the development of this thought and how we reach this conclusion. So the purpose of creation is a mutuality grounded within God's love. It is a type of relationality that has God at the center of everything. The word for this is theocentric, which means God-centered. Theo meaning God-centric, centered. God-centered. David Clough argues that the theocentric understanding of creation is one that emphasizes mutuality. Creation is not only about God or only about humanity or only about creation. It is about the mutuality of loving, which involves both giving and receiving. This view of the created world places God at the center of everything, and I believe that this should prompt us towards seeing how God loves all creatures directly in their particularity, irrespective of their relationship or usefulness to humanity. Every creature has an important part and experience within the creation and salvific history. So the purpose of creation is to exhibit a type of perfected harmony of love, both creature to creature and creature to God. 
So that's the big summary of tonight. And now we are going to unpack that. We're going to look at some Bible verses that deal with it. We're going to look at some other theological resources. Athanasius might make a guest appearance. We'll see if we have time, but that's going to be the general summary of what we are looking at. But before we get too far into it, I did want to just stop and ask, are there any questions about what I just said? Um, because I understand that was a lot of dense material packed into just a couple of paragraphs. Um, so I want to make sure that I didn't say anything that maybe only made sense to myself. Uh, so do we have any questions or anything like that? I assume your second part of creature to God, love, that is symmetric here also implying that God loves all animals, true? Yes, yes, thank you. That is, a, um, I suppose, a, a missing piece of the, of the formulation there. Um, so thank you for pointing that out, yes. Um, it, it'd be um, creature to creature and, and for the sake of, of this class, whenever I say creature, I do include humans as well, because creature kind of means like uh, something that a being that is created, right? And that would apply to us as well. Um, and so, yeah, the formulation under that would be a love from creature to creature, from creature to God, but also from God to creature. Any other questions or points that need clarification. Could you um, possibly restate your point about how creation is not only about, and then you've said what it's not only about, and then what it actually is about. Uh, okay, so the point of what uh, creation is not about versus what it is about? Mm. Okay, yes, um, great. Yeah, uh, let me get back to my notes here. So the purpose of creation, I believe, uh, what it's about is it is a uh, mutuality type of relationality that is grounded within God's love. And, and this would be placing God's love at the center of everything. And so that's kind of what we were just talking about, where it is uh, the purpose is to have this, this love being shown from creature to creature, uh, from creature to God, but then also from God to creature. And uh, learning to exist within this type of harmony of giving and receiving love that is grounded within God. Uh, and this would be different than saying that uh, creation is, say, only about humanity. And we're going to look, we'll learn about that more in, in a couple of weeks, but that's kind of often how, how we frame things is saying like, oh, well, you know, and, and that's, the, the illustration that I gave at the beginning of um, there's a tendency within the church to see creation as just kind of like a stage for human action, um, or it's just kind of like a back, it's just backgrounds that, yeah, it doesn't really matter if you can get rid of it. What really matters is, is humanity. That's the only purpose of creation. Um, so that's kind of what I think it's, I, I don't agree with that view. So would you, um, would you, say that the center be, or the foundation being God's love is a different statement than the foundation being God himself? That is a great question. And 
Or is that like, I can wait until the end? <laughs> no, no, I think that's a great question. Um, and because uh, it, it brings up all sorts of other theological questions, um, because there's part of me that wants to say, well, God is God's love. Um, and, and there's a whole tradition of not wanting to make a distinction there, and it's called divine simplicity and so on and so forth. But, uh, but I guess the, the purpose, I think, of, of saying it's about God's love is just to say that um, the role that humans and non-humans play within creation is not just dispensable, that, that it is important, that like our lives are and what we do is important as well as the lives of, of what non-human creatures do and, and all of these facets working together is what makes up creation. Um, so, and, and that they have a part to play within, within the purpose of, of what God is doing. Does that make sense? Yeah, you can. Okay, that's great. But um, I will keep thinking about that because I'll, I'll say that as like a hesitant answer right now. I'll keep thinking about it though and, and see if I have a better uh, answer to your question. Thank you. Yeah, great. Anything else? All right. So we will now proceed. So I guess the, the, the formulation that I'm working with under the, the purpose of creation, I'm wanting to, to contrast it. And I hinted at this a little bit in our, our brief question and answer section. Uh, what I wanna contrast this with is something that we see in kind of our pop theology we often seem to presuppose that the purpose of creation is just humankind. So God created like the whole cosmos and, and, and all the vast existence and the earth and trees and animals and so forth, but it's all about humanity. And this is a term called anthropocentricism, which I will define in a second. But as David Clough notes, we very often don't offer the most compelling theological or biblical arguments for saying that the purpose of creation is just humans. Uh, it's more like we simply don't consider questions about creation that exist outside the sphere of human life or human interest. It's a weird sort of working presupposition that the church often has. And in coming weeks, we will examine what this ideology is. And it's something called, as I just said, anthropocentricism. And that's the big word that you'll learn in this class uh, that you'll get to use whenever you're talking to all your friends and impress them with your uh, great vocabulary. And the word anthropocentricism, it's something that influences our neglect of other creatures within our theology. And the term refers to the belief that only humans matter and only human interests matter. And all questions about theology or the world should be considered only in terms of how it benefits human interest. So I'll give you that definition one more time. Anthropocentricism is the belief that only humans matter and only human interests matter. And all questions about theology of the world should be considered only in terms of how it benefits human interests. But the problem 
And I, I will say this, uh, David Clough, I, I don't think I have this in my notes, but David Clough uh, has kind of a funny point within his book when he's talking about anthropocentrism in which he mentions that it's kind of hard to see the difference between anthropocentrism and just egocentrism, you know, e egoism uh, of uh, just saying like, you know, I'm the center of everything. And, and the only thing that matters are my interests and everything and all questions about the world should only be through how they pertain to my own interests. Uh, and so we see it, it's a little bit selfish, uh, I think, but he has a funny discussion about that in his book. Moving on. Um, but the problem of neglecting questions of the purpose of creation is not just due to our own kind of egocentric tendencies. Mind you, I'm not accusing any of you, obviously, uh, of, of this, but, you know, humanity's egocentric tendencies. But as Clough points out, the Bible itself is not entirely clear about the purpose of creation within popular texts. Regarding the creation accounts in Genesis 1 and 2, Clough says the following, quote, God creates. Creation comes into being. The texts are more concerned to establish and celebrate this than to assert God's purpose or end in this activity, end quote. So it's kind of like, you know, the Bible wants, is really excited about saying, yeah, God is the one who created everything. Isn't that awesome? Uh, and then it doesn't really go into like this, you know, super thought out, you know, dense systematic analysis on the purpose of each individual thing that God has created and how it fits into all of God's purposes and everything. It's just kind of like a celebration and, and a worship and, and a mystery and a thanksgiving uh, to God for creating it, but doesn't exactly answer all the questions that we might have. And likewise, in the New Testament, and even in the what are called the ecumenical creeds, so things like Apostles' Creed and Nicene Creed that uh, in maybe in your church tradition, you say them on Sundays, we see a focus uh, within the New Testament and, and, and ecumenical creeds, we are given some purposes, but sometimes it's just like within, we're referring to the incarnation. So like the Nicene Creed, for example, it says that uh, the incarnation was, quote, for us and for our salvation, end quote. But this still does not answer the question about the purpose of creation. You know, other than the incarnation, it doesn't answer the purpose, the questions about the purpose of creation or God's motivation behind creating something rather than nothing. Furthermore, it doesn't exactly answer questions that we might have about the relationship between the incarnation and non-human aspects of creation. So we can affirm, yes, the incarnation was for us and for our, our salvation, which is what you know New Testament and creeds teach, but it doesn't exactly answer all the questions that we might have. Nonetheless, uh, I'm not trying to imply that scripture is completely absent about the importance of creation. Uh, I, I don't, please don't run away thinking that that's what I'm saying, ah, you know, scripture doesn't say anything about this, so, you know, forget about it, and uh, that's not at all what I'm implying. Uh, so let's take some time, and we're going to look at some of the biblical themes, and admittedly, there's a little bit of, of picking and choosing the passages that, on my part, I did this, picking and choosing the passages that portray non-human animals in the most positive light, 
But I think it's important for us to pause and really consider these passages because we can often overlook them or overlook the implications that they have for the non-human parts of God's creation. And so could I actually get a uh, volunteer reader? So that way we, we get a break from me talking. Would somebody be willing, I'm going to share the scriptures on screen. Uh, would somebody be willing just to, uh, to read them? I don't mind. Okay, great. Thank you so much. Let me, uh, let me pull up the PowerPoint for us. Whoa, are y'all seeing like a really weird? Okay, did I fix it? Did it glitch out for y'all there for a second too? That was, uh, that was crazy. Okay, are you seeing a full, um, oh, sorry. Okay, so yes, um, if you could please read, uh, the first reading will be Genesis 1, and then there will be um, uh, Genesis 9 after that. So if you could read those two passages for us. And to every beast of the earth, and every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. Thank you. And then Genesis 9. As for me, I am establishing my covenant with you and your descendants after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the domestic animals, and every animal of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy you. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Uh, and... Actually, let's go ahead, if you could just read one more passage for us, since I already have you volunteered. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Uh, this is going to be Romans 8. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subjected to fertility not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the spirit, groan inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Wonderful. Thank you so much. So in the Genesis chapter one uh, passage of scripture, we see that non-human animals share in the in sharing God's breath of life. It's kind of this uh, common factor that, that both humans and non-human animals share, that there's this breath of life that is given to all creatures. In Genesis 9, we see that God establishes a covenant, not just with humanity, but with all flesh. And likewise, we have a couple of, of eschatological visions of the future redemption of all creation that are within Scripture. The first one that we just heard is 
Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25. And it talks about the famous metaphor of creation itself groaning in anticipation to be set free from its bondage to decay. And there's this kind of vision wrapped up within there of, of the, the redemption of all things that humans are participating in. And I don't know this for sure, because I can't get into the mind of Paul and I can't understand all of Paul's intentions in writing Romans, but my hunch is that he might be influenced a little bit by another famous passage in um, Isaiah chapter 11. And Isaiah provides this vivid and, and vibrant set of metaphors for a future reconciliation and redemption of all creatures. And so I'm going to go ahead and just uh, read that passage for us real quick. And this is Isaiah chapter 11. The wolf shall live with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, the calf and the lion and the fatling together, and a child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put its hand on the adder's den. They will not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I, I think it's just one of the most beautiful passages of scripture. It's one of my favorites. It's overwhelming with its poetic beauty. And if I had to choose one verse, I think that this passage of scripture is like maybe the foundational text for animal theology. And I think it gives an excellent summary of what we've been talking about with the purpose of God's creation. God's love, grace, and redemption are seen here in this in this in these brilliant metaphors those things are seen plunging the depths of creation and pouring out over every creature to transform creation itself and so uh let's take a moment to talk about this we just looked at series of, of scripture verses and and as well as some other material uh, so i want to ask uh, do you have any thoughts about these scripture passages or anything said thus far, and are there any other passages of scripture that you would include that are relevant for understanding God's purpose in creation and how animals fit into that picture? That was a mouthful of a question that is <laughs> that didn't seem as long whenever I was writing it out, so I'm going to put it in the chat for us to, to read. Uh, so if you need it stated again, there it is in the chat. Uh, so yeah, uh, do you have any thoughts about these scripture verses, or did any other verses come to mind about this topic? Oh, uh, sorry, um, uh, Kenyon, you're, uh, Davenport, uh, uh, you're going to have to unmute yourself. Sorry about that. How's that better? Yes, thank you. Can you hear me? Okay, yeah, I just, 
So up until this point, I'm uh, things that I think are really key is that what the whole thing about animal theology is that it's going to have to, it could stand to provoke something, a theological equivalent of a Copernican revolution mm. because it's reorienting where the center is. Yeah. I am delighted that you are doing this uh, because I think, it, you know, it may start with a small group but hopefully it'll spread out because um, I think it's, it's extremely important that we maybe reorient ourselves in terms of that relationship of creature-creature, creature-God, and so forth and so on. Um, Thank you so much. Wow, I really appreciate it. That, that's what I'm going to say for right now. So thanks for the opportunity. <laughs> Great. Yeah, thank you so much, Kim. Wow. Uh, I, I love, oh, I just love that metaphor of, of Copernican revolution. Reorienting, uh, reorienting the center um, of things. Yeah, uh, that, that is wonderful. Thank you so much. Anyone else have any, any thoughts or, or questions or Bible verses that came to mind? Hi, Nathaniel. Uh, Greg here. Not hey. Particular, hey, not a, not a Bible verse per se, but it immediately brought my uh, thoughts to that uh, 19th century painting by Edward Hicks, uh, The Peaceable Kingdom. Uh, so this has been a, a, a common, uh, this is a, a touchstone for a lot of folks uh, in your area of, of thought here. So might be worth looking up. The Peaceable Kingdom. The Peaceable Kingdom by Edward Hicks, you said? Yes. Okay, great. I just put the, uh, is that correct in the chat? Edward Hicks, or is it with a, an X? Just look up Peaceable Kingdom. Okay. Great. I will. I can't think of the painting off the top of my head, but I will definitely look that You'll up. Know it. You'll know okay. it. <laughs> Great. Thank you so much. I always, I always love having like painting recommendations and any sort of uh, kind of visual theology. That's great. The scriptures that come to mind are the praise psalms. Hmm. <laughs> Very last one, let everything that hath breath praise the Lord. <laughs> yes. All of those scriptures just all bring together about god is the center of it all oh and yeah come on oh yeah <laughs> oh that's great yes um definitely yeah uh and and there we see just connecting to genesis right everything that has breath is kind of the breath of of of, of life that we looked about in the first and then uh you know everything that has breath praise the lord uh, that's just yeah that's great the, the psalms are full of this kind of imagery um so it it, <laughs> it would take too long for us to go through all of them but um, certainly, it's it's all over the place. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, sorry, go ahead, Lydia. Oh no, go for it. Um, I was just going to mention. Uh, Caitlin posted in the chat um, uh, another great observation. Um, New Testament includes language about lilies of the field and and birds of the air, um, and yeah, those are, are are great metaphors, especially like the passage. You know, not a sparrow falls that God doesn't know about. Um, this kind of uh, a care and, and concern, uh, something about each particular creature uh, is, is having a place within God's heart. Could that verse also be used to argue for an anthropocentric ideology? Because it goes on to say, how much more will your father love you? That's true. Yes, and it, it certainly has been used that way, um, definitely. And though, even if one wanted to have anthropocentric con con conclusions from that, 
one would have to acknowledge first that the sparrows do hold a value within God's heart. Um, and so even, and some people have argued this, uh, a, a decent example of a book that kind of looks like that is one called um, Pollution and the Death of Man by Francis Schaeffer, which is, uh, it's, it's work by, he's an evangelical kind of fundamentalist, but um, he argues within that book that uh, Christians ought to have a, a supreme respect. Uh, Christians, based on the doctrine of, of creation, that all things belong to God, um, Christians ought to be the ones who love creation more than anything else, or more than anyone else. Um, and, and he does kind of hold the, the view that, the, you know, that you just mentioned, Lydia, of like, you know, humans are more important than animals. That is his position, but um, he has lots of arguments within that book that say that even if that is the case, it doesn't mean that one should then uh, devalue um, animals, or, or it, it's still the case that one should be thinking theologically about animals, valuing animals, treating them with respect and, and dignity and so forth. So you would, you would not say the case that it's the case that somebody like is either anthropocentric or they subscribe to animal theology. Like there's, there are other options besides those two. That's, uh, yes, that's a, a interesting point. Um, I would still, uh, so I would not characterize Francis Schaeffer as anthropocentric. Um, in at least the, the definition that, that I've kind of given of anthropocentrism. And, and we'll talk about this more in the next coming weeks. Um, but uh, yeah, I would not consider anthropo uh, Francis Schaeffer to be anthropocentric though. Um, uh, and I would not say that anthropocentrism is the belief that humans are more valuable than other animals. Anthropocentrism would be almost, I think, denying that anything else is of kind of real value um, or um or of like any significant value you know so it's kind of like uh um you know eh, sure the trees are nice but eh, if we want to cut them down to make a profit then go for it um or like yeah you know the, the pet's a nice little play thing but you know if your cat dies your cat dies who really cares it's just an animal that would be like an anthropocentric attitude which um i, I don't think is is appropriate um, so let's go ahead so, so we don't get, uh, the, the, these are, thank you so much for your questions and, and points. These are, are great. And thank you so much for, uh, y'all are asking some great like clarification questions that help us get down into, into more um, robustly defining um, these terms. So that's uh, great. Thank you so much for that. Um, but we'll go ahead and move on to uh, some other material so we don't, uh, I don't keep y'all too late. Uh, so now we are going to turn to another topic that brings up some important questions for animal theology. And I kind of hinted at this earlier in my, uh, whenever I mentioned kind of the creeds in the New Testament. And this would be the doctrine of the incarnation. So first we have what might seem to be a huge problem for animal theology. Uh, you know, the, the word became uh, flesh and this it, and it was a human, you know, Jesus was a human. Uh, and so does the incarnation, you know, Christ being a human, does that mean that God is then only concerned with humans? And the answer to this, I, I personally believe is no. 
And in David Clough's book, he points out that maintaining such a position that, okay, God was incarnate particularly in, uh, as a human. So that means that God only cons is concerned about humans, that that type of, of thinking would lead perhaps to other very problematic theological conclusions. Since God became incarnate as specifically a Jewish male, does that mean that God is only concerned about Jewish people or men? <laughs> um, obviously not. And as Clough says, even within the New, this is a quote from him, quote, even within the New Testament canon, the church argued about the significance of the Jewishness of Jesus Christ and of his disciples. But it eventually came to the conclusion that the religious identity of the incarnate God should not be construed as defining a boundary of salvation. And I think that that's a, a I, I love that phrase, a boundary of salvation. Um, and I think it's a great statement that the particularities about Jesus's identity should not be construed as a boundary of salvation. So just because Jesus was a man does not mean that men are intrinsically more valuable than women um, and doesn't mean that God only is concerned about men. And I think that we should apply that kind of logic to, to animals and, and to humans as well, that just because Jesus was incarnate as a human does not mean that God does not care about animals. Uh, and there's also things that we can develop about, like, oh, well, you know, humans are animals. <laughs> um, so, any, but that, that's another train of thought. Um, so to help us broaden the scope of work in Christ and the relevance of the incarnation for all of creation, uh, David Clough makes an argument in which he just, he turns to scripture and he looks at the book of Colossians, uh, chapter one, verses 15 through 20, uh, which I will, uh, let me get that up on this screen for us. Would anybody like to read it? Great, Ken. Um, all right. So let me let me pull it up for you. Uh, can you see that all right? Yes. Okay, great. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. Excellent. Thank you so much. So Clough summarizes the implications of this verse as follows, quote, at the heart of the Colossians hymn, that's what this passage of scripture is called, the Colossians hymn. At the heart of this Colossians hymn is the affirmation that Christ is the beginning and the end of creation, and that there's nothing beyond the scope of his creative and redemptive work. 
as we just saw here. I mean, that's a really big, big statement that I think we need to take seriously, um, that all things have, be crea- have been created through him and for him. It's a, it's a big word, all. Uh, and I think that we need to take it seriously. And I like how David Clough brings that as an application to animal theology, because what Clough is doing in his argument is saying that because through Christ, quote, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or earth, as we just saw in, Col- in quote, that was from Colossians, this leaves the door wide open for the inclusion of non-human animals to participate in the reconciling work of Christ. Thus, I think it would be mistaken that uh, to maintain that the incarnation implies that Christ is only concerned about humanity. Instead, once again, we need to open the, open the door wider and not treat humanity as kind of the boundary of salvation. And so the point is not that the, uh, the humanity of, of Christ, but rather, sorry, the point of the incarnation is not, according to Colossians, the humanity of Christ, but the universal and cosmic scope of the work of Christ. And this type of thinking is also applied by David Clough to the logic of the atonement. The atonement, if you're not familiar with the word, uh, is a phrase that simply means, in what ways does the crucifixion of Jesus reconcile us to God? And there are lots of different theories about the atonement. And many of us have probably heard some really bad ones uh, and some really like shocking or even scary ones. Um, But you know, there, there are plenty of different theories, and not all of them are even mutually exclusive, but the standard facet of the atonement is that Christ's work on the cross defeats sin and death, and it makes it possible for us to experience holiness and eternal life, and so at the, uh, at the atonement and resurrection, Christ overcomes the brokenness of our world, and this enables us to have a relationship with God and to be reconciled to God. And it also has, uh, it kind of secures that eschatological destiny, you know, the, the future hope of the new heavens and the new earth. Um, it secures those things that, that we just looked at in Isaiah 11 and, and Romans 8. And so humans are not the only, I, I, so speaking, sorry, <laughs> jumbling over my words here, which is fine. Um, the standard facet of the atonement, that Christ's work on the cross defeats sin and death, and that Christ overcomes the brokenness of our world. Humans are not the only ones who live in the aftermath of sin and death. Humans are not the only ones who are suffering from the brokenness of our world. Death and a failure to live into God's original purpose of creation is a conditioning force. Uh, It's a reality that conditions the lives of non-human animals as well. As David Clough put it, quote, all creatures suffer from the violence that fills the earth in Genesis 6, 11. And Romans 8, which we just talked about in red, Romans 8 pictures the liberation of all creation. It is Christ's work on the cross that brings about such liberation. 
So hopefully that makes sense. Um, and I recognize that was a lot of dense theological material <laughs> packed into just a few minutes. So let's take a pause. Are there any questions or comments about the incarnation, atonement, and animal theology? Do we have any questions? Do we need any clarification about that? Uh, or are there any other aspects of the incarnation or atonement that you would like to apply, that you think would apply well to non-human animals also? Uh, and I'll put that question in the chat because that was a mouthful again. Sorry, I write really long questions. <laughs> I have a question. Yes. Do you, so you said humanity is not a boundary of salvation. Is that what you said? Yes. Would you say that other living things can obtain salvation or, or, or where is, is there a distinction between the way that we experience God and the way animals do? Are those two separate questions? Great. Yes. Uh, excellent question. Um, and thank you for, uh, yeah, that, that's great. Glad I get to clarify this. So I do think that those are two separate questions. Um, so I'll answer them separately. Uh, one, yes, I do believe that like animals uh, uh, have salvation. Um, and Clough and, and myself are getting this from um, John Wesley, the great Methodist theologian. Um, and uh, I think John Wesley here is influenced, uh, well, I've in the sermon in which he develops this thought, he's influenced by Romans 8 and Colossians 1, the two passages that we just read. So um, yeah, all dogs go to heaven. Um, you know, uh, all cows go to heaven. Um, and I, I do think that that is uh, a theological application that comes from, from these passages, that uh, non-human animals are able to be reconciled to God and to experience that um, as well. Uh, and that the work of Christ secures the salvation of non-human animals. Um, and then your second question, um, do non-human animals have a kind of uh, particular experience of, of God's presence? I would say yes. Um, and I think that God is present to different creatures within their own particularity. So God might have a kind of a way of relating to to dogs that is different than humans um or you know uh say like dogs that's just an easy example dogs might have an awareness of god's presence and love that is different maybe than how humans express their awareness of 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 god's love um because just a lot of a lot of human experience is kind of conditioned and influenced by language and kind of language linguistic faculty that humans have and this is kind of a unique um, uh, a facet of, of human nature, um, but that does not, and so that kind of conditions a lot how we express and, and think about God's, and talk about God's presence, but, um, you know, God might be present to, to creatures in another way, and um, um, because there's a, a long, I, I think I might have this, hopefully I have this in, in the notes for the weeks to come, hopefully I can just summarize it real quickly, but uh, the famous theologian Emil Bruner, um, from the 20th century, great theologian, uh, he had a whole development of revelation as what he called non-propositional, foundationally, um, which means that the, the foundation of God's revelation is just God revealing God's self to us in kind of like an existential encounter, right? It's, it's that kind of presence and experience and encounter with God that goes beyond, beyond all words that we could express, right? 
Um, and so I think that this, you know, uh, could very well apply to non-human animals also, um, that, you know, this, that God is capable of, of being present to them and, and they would be able to um, experience God's love in that way. And I like Bruner's definition because I think it also leaves the door open for um, like very young children, right? Who, who've yet to, you know, they, they would be able to experience God's presence. Um, uh, people with kind of severe mental disabilities, um, you know, would be able to experience God's presence as well as um, people who later in life maybe develop Alzheimer's or something like that, where, where their mental life is, um, you know, uh, or their, their mental capacities are greatly diminished. Um, but I, I, what I like about Bruner is this insistence that, you know, none of those things are, are you know, th those sorts of limitations uh, it cannot prevent, God is bigger than those limitations, right? And, and so God is, is bigger than any limitations and God is fully capable of giving God's presence, God's love, God's even revelation, if you will, um, to any creature. So hopefully that wasn't too long of a question. Hopefully that answers it. I would like to ask a follow-up question, but I'll wait in case other people have questions. Okay. Thank you for being uh, uh, considerate. Thank you. Uh, but great questions. Any, anyone else have questions? And just to clarify, I'm not saying that like God can't, God doesn't reveal God's self in, in words or propositions, right? Like, you know, scripture is revelatory. That's a lot of words. Um, so I'm not denying that. I'm just, you know, saying that there, there's the other aspect of, well, God's direct experiential revelation. Um, but any other questions? No? Okay. Well, um, uh, I'll, I'll go ahead and, and bring us to a, a summary here. So to summarize kind of what we've talked about, creation is not only about God or about humanity or about creation. Um, and I realize that first sentence, creation is not only about God, that sounds... I don't know if I like that phrase actually, but um, what I mean by that is that, um, you know, the non-God parts of creation are important as well. Um, and we, but, uh, and we need to think about the, the mutuality, the relationship of all of these things. Um, it's about a mutuality of loving, which involves both giving and receiving glory um, or receiving, giving and receiving love. Every creature has an important part and experience within the creation and salvific history. So the purpose of creation um, is to exhibit a type of perfected harmony of love, both creature to creature and creature to God and God to creature. But the foundation of all of that is God and the love that God has shown us and the grace that sustains us. So if there's one thing that I hope that we take away from this class and the weeks going forward, it would be for us to see an expansion of God's love. Rather than seeing God's love as kind of only skimmering the very top of creation, barely touching the immaterial souls of only some humans, my prayer is that we would expand our perception to see God's love plunging into the depths 
of creation, filling every atom and pouring out grace upon every creature. Uh, and so to, to conclude our time together, uh, I would like to end with a prayer. Please play, pray with me. Heavenly Father, your Holy Spirit gives breath to all living things. Renew us by the same Spirit that we may, that we may learn to respect what you have given and care for what you have made. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. Amen. Question. Uh, so you just asked Elizabeth about the, the non-God parts of creation. And yeah, I, I, I think that, that that was just not a good phrase. Um, by me, because um, obviously, uh, you know, God is omnipresent and God is, you know, God's presence is everywhere. So there's, you know, no, nowhere that we can get that's, that's outside of God's presence and God's grace and, and love. Um, so I, I guess what I mean by that is simply say, like, like I'm not God, you know, um, and yes, God is, is present to me, and I would not exist without God's sustaining power at every moment. Um, but like, I'm not divine in the sense of uh, I'm something that is that is created. I'm contingent upon God's creative activity in order to exist. And so I think that's what I mean is uh, the, the non-God parts of creation. That's just not a good phrase. I, what I should have said is um, the parts of creation that are contingent upon God for their existence. And contingent is a phrase that means like it, it could be otherwise, right? It didn't have to exist. Um, it, in order to exist, it had to be created by God. Um, so that, that's what I meant. Um, that makes sense. Thank you. Is there a part of creation that is not contingent upon God? Uh, no, I would, I would not say so. So the, the distinction within, um, and I'm working, let me here, I'll define my terms. Uh, the distinction within uh, philosophy that's often used in kind of philosophy of religion um, is a distinction between contingent and necessary. Um, so uh, uh, contingently existing um, means that it would like I kind of said, it'd be possible for you to not exist. Um, so there's uh, the phrase that they sometimes use is there's a possible world in which you don't exist, right? So like if, uh, you know, tides have changed, none of our parents would have met, then, you know, none, none of us would exist right now, right? Um, or, you know, uh, not to be morbid, but like, you know, one day I'll, I'll, I'll die, I'll pass away, and then I won't exist anymore. Um, and it could have been possible for me not to be born. Um, and, you know, and it, that's the case for um, most people would say it's kind of the case for everything within creation, right? It could have been otherwise, or it could have been possible that it didn't exist. Um, God could have chosen to not make the earth, right? And, and maybe, you know, make another planet in a different solar system and then earth wouldn't exist, right? So, uh, but uh, so that's different than necessarily existing, which means that uh, hopefully this isn't too technical, uh, but uh, existing by one's own nature. So one does not, uh, so a necessarily existing being is a being that does not rely upon 
anything else for its existence. So there's nothing external to God that God relies upon for God's existence. Um, and God exists purely by God's own essential nature. Um, and so that's, uh, that, that's the difference. And that's not, I should also clarify, that's not just special pleading for, for God. Other people debate like, oh, could there be another necessarily existing thing? Some people said maybe the universe itself is necessarily um, existent. That's sometimes more of a, an atheistic or maybe a pantheistic version. Um, other people uh, debate about numbers. That's usually like the really big thing or, or like, are numbers necessarily exist? Would it be possible for the number two not to exist? You know, like that, that kind of, so the, the, sorry, that's getting too, I was a philosophy major, so now I'm getting too excited. But um, does, does that distinction make sense? I kind of got off on a, on a tangent there. Yeah. Do you think it might be valuable to not even include God in that list then? What do you mean? Like you were saying, you make this statement like the universe, or sorry, creation is about, it's not only about God or about oh. creation or about et cetera. Sorry, not creation, but it would mm -hmm. be better to just not include God in that. It would. It would definitely be better. And uh, I should have prepared my notes better. So I apologize to all of you, but thank you for, for bringing this attention. I'm glad that, that we get to characterize this. So yes, I think if we were to rephrase it, uh, it um, it'd probably be uh, creation, uh, creation is not only about humans. And it's not only about non-humans. It's about uh, you know, the mutuality that, that could exist in accordance to God's love and with God's love at the foundation of everything. In a future episode, will you be talking about self-vision for animals, or is that kind of an auxiliary topic? Talking about, uh, I'm sorry, what? So, animal salvation. Oh, animal salvation. Um, uh, yes, I believe that I, that we will. Oh, okay. If not, then, then I'll, I'll put it into my I'll put it into my notes. But um, but yes. Oh, I guess I can um real quick. There's uh, since y'all are staying around, you're welcome to leave. By the way, I don't I don't want to keep you because because that's on me for for taking up too much of y'all's time. But um, I will give a, a brief kind of um uh, analogy. So going back to um, because remember if I said if we had time, Athanasius might make a guest appearance. So I'll, I'll bring him out now. Um, and uh, on, on the topic of animal the, uh, salvation, uh, Athanasius, well, he was not specifically talking about this, but I think that it certainly applies to it. Athanasius was an early church father, um, and he had a lot to say about the incarnation. He had some of the most important stuff that, that influenced later doctrines of how we think about the incarnation today. Um, his view was that the incarnation is kind of like a second act of creation. It is God recreating the world or bringing about a, the new heavens and the new earth within the shell of the current creation. And that uh, he believes that this is, yeah, it's like a recreation that also creates the possibility for salvation. And he uses an analogy of a king going to stay in a city. And he says that when a king wants to imbue his royalty and significance to a particular city, 
He does not have to sleep in every home and walk into every building or drive down every street. But by simply staying in one home or by staying in one castle, the entire city can be transformed and be considered, you know, okay, this is the royal city. And it is likewise with the incarnation. By becoming incarnate as one particular creature, all creation can then be redeemed. And so he, he used that like, so like, you know, got, uh, by, and it was initially, sorry, initially used to think about the incarnation and its relationship to salvation. Because remember, like Jesus is just incarnate as one uh, particular, Jesus is just incarnate as one particular human. Um, so then, uh, you know, in what, what, well, one particular human body. And so um, he was kind of thinking about, okay, well, no, it's like, you know, just by being one human body, you could save like all of, all of the, you know, all the human bodies or all, all, all the human people. Um, and I, I just think that, you know, what he says, and especially based on like what he says about the incarnation and as kind of like the second act of, of creation that's bringing about the new heavens and the new earth, I think it should just be um, expanded and said that like, you know, it, it applies to all creatures as well. And, um, oh, and I guess on also on, oh, well, I'm just on the topic, sorry, and rambling. And this will be my last thing. And then then you should go home. Uh, no, you are home. <laughs> you, you can just hit the close button. Um, but uh, my, my last thought is there's some sayings of like, uh, it, it just for whatever reason became popular within kind of our, our pop theology and churches of saying like, oh, animals don't have souls. Um, and that's just kind of like a working assumption within churches. And I don't think that's true. And that's not even like the early church didn't really think that way either. Um, they were more influenced by Aristotle and, and, um, and Aristotle believed like that there's just different souls of different kinds of creatures. So like humans have like what he called the rational soul, which is seen in like language. Um, and then like, you know, animals have like the animal soul or whatever. So, um, but uh, so, yeah, I, I do think that animals um, have souls, they have beliefs, they have desires, they have emotions, they have um, all sorts of things of, uh, you know, like if, if your dog, uh, it understands that by performing certain actions, it can get your attention and, you know, dogs communicate with us all the time. Um, it's not a human type of communication, but they do have like beliefs that, oh, if I perform a certain kind of um, you know, uh, uh, action, then it will, you know, help my human. That's not just a learned behavior, I don't think, or, you know, it's not just like a Pavlov's dog type of scenario. Um, but there's also just the animals exhibit intentionality of thought. So um, to keep going with the illustration of dogs, most of us have probably had experiences if you have a pet where your dog is, um, uh, you know, just sitting down, minding its own business, and all of a sudden it, it gets up and it like runs around the house, tearing around the house, and then it finds its toy and it, you know, goes back and it's like, okay, so your dog was just like sitting there and all of a sudden it had this thought of like, I want my toy. Um, you know, my toy is not with me. I need to go find my toy. Um, anyway, maybe that's just an example, but th that is like uh, something called intentionality of thought. These are all like soul making 
um, qualities. Um, and so I, I think that that could apply to, to animals as well. So if, you know, if human souls can have eternal life, uh, then I think animals, no reason animal souls can't. And even if animals don't have souls, um, I still think that they can experience eternal life. Um, there is uh, some uh, work that is actually done by two philosophers named, uh, and more than that, but two Christian philosophers named Peter Vandenwagen and Timothy O'Connor. I'll write their names. Uh, Timothy O'Connor um, was actually one of my professors. I went to Baylor University and I had him as a professor. Um, and he's just, he's the, he's the best. Um, so if you want like great Christian philosophy, definitely look up Timothy O'Connor and he's an expert on the whole necessary versus contingent um, distinction. So uh, he's like the best philosopher on, on that topic. So highly recommend it. But they, they provided some uh, philosophical kind of thought experiments that show that even if humans don't have souls, it is still logically possible for uh, an afterlife to exist. And they provided a couple of different um, thought experiments that we, even if we don't like find them convincing, they're not trying to say this is how it happens, but they just said, you know, these thought experiments would show that it is logically possible that if humans or any creature does not have a soul, God is still capable of giving them eternal life. Um, and so some of the thought experiments, like these are really silly. Okay. So like, just, just brace yourself, but they're fun of like, um, Peter Vandenwagen says, uh, you know, it's possible that like right before the moment of death, God is able to miraculously intervene and steal part of your brain and replace it with a different, um, uh, I didn't, you know, replica, and then, you know, use that part of, uh, you know, that your, your brain to, um, uh, create a new body around you and then, you know, sustain that body in, in, in the afterlife, um, which is silly. He's not saying that's how it actually works, but that is logically possible. And so it means that it would be logically possible for, you know, the afterlife to exist with, um, you know, if we don't have souls and then Van Wagons is kind of like, well, you know, and God's more creative than I am on, in that respect. Uh, Timothy O'Connor has another illustration of, um, Something about like uh, people are always, you know, quantum mechanics and stuff where it's uh, an atom can duplicate itself, um, uh, you know, or like quantum particles or whatever are able to like split, make a, a duplicate copy of themselves. So it's possible that um, at the moment of death, God just duplicates you uh, in that respect. Um, and so like then the, the dead body that, that we interact with is actually kind of like a duplicate of the real dead body that, that God takes and, and sustains in the afterlife. Again, silly illustration. And they're not saying that this is how the afterlife works. This is a process within philosophy that is used to generate certain kinds of thought experiments to think through um, whether or not something is logically possible and to say like, and so the conclusion based on that, so long as it's logic, you know, it's, there's not like a logical contradiction within thinking that maybe God makes a duplicate of you right before you die. It's silly, but it's not a logical contradiction. And so that means that God would be able to sustain an afterlife, even if we don't have souls. And so I think that that would apply to um, non-human animals as well if non-human animals don't have souls. Which they do. 
<laughs> Which I think that they do. I think like if, if humans have souls, then I, I think animals have souls as, as well. Um, because a lot of like the soul making um, uh, properties that soul making properties that that humans have things that about human nature that we think are reasons why we would have a soul. We see a lot of those in non-human animals as well. And I think that a lot of like the scientists and, and what they're, you know, scientific research on just observing the lives of animals and understanding what they're capable of is they're just capable of a lot more than what we ever imagined. So, um, uh, okay, yes, uh, Ken, you That's made deep. a point. Um, <laughs> That's really uh, deep. And this is an excellent point, and I'm not going to unpack it now because we're going to have a whole week about this, um, about unpacking the view of like animals as machines. Um, and uh, yes, we absolutely need to move away from that. Um, so thank you for bringing that up. We're going to put a pin in it now, and we will uh, come back in, in depth um, and, and look at that. So yes, thank you for bringing that up. That's a teaser. <laughs> It's a teaser for weeks to come. <laughs> I think we could do three classes on that. That's pretty deep. <laughs> we could. I think I think there's like two of them. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, uh, I'll, I'll stop the recording now. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you everyone who, who's watching online. Thank you.